Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Did you know there was a 2015 off-Broadway musical called Nevermore, based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe? I feel like I should be coming up with some type of, of, of punchline joke. I threw you because I didn't uh, first explain the song. Yes, yeah, I no, I did not know. Well, there was. And this song is called The Raven, music and lyrics by Jonathan Christensen and featuring Scott Shepley. You can find it on Apple Music, on a special remix EP. Is it still on Off-Broadway? I don't know. So really what you're saying is that it will be on Broadway nevermore. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) yes. I had to pull that one out real quick. Oh, that was good. good. Maybe we should start off by saying happy Halloween season. It's, It's officially the Halloween season, the most wonderful time of the year. You think of Poe, you think of Halloween and the Halloween season and fall and, well, The Raven. We're doing a Raven double feature. Now, there's definitely more than two movies named The Raven. I know there's a John Cusack one that's named The Raven, where I think he actually plays Poe in that movie. Yeah. We're pulling out two of the classics. The uh, 1935 universal horror classic, The Raven, with Karloff and Lugosi. Uh, no, Karloff and Bella Lugosi. He's actually billed as Lugosi. He is? Yeah, in the opening credits, he's actually... I... In the... Okay, if you say I, so. I, well, I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. We will, as you know... <laughs> we'll we'll check, and when we get there and talk about it, we'll, we'll clarify that. I'm fairly certain that this was his one and only film billed as Lugosi. Do you want to uh, put any money on it? Um, sure, sure. I have a Dunkin' Donuts gift card that still has $6.43 on it. How about the uh, one who's incorrect has to buy the other person three Blu-rays off of the Kino Lovers October sale? Oh my gosh. (laughs) If I'm wrong, I will stand corrected. But he is second build to Karloff, and we will definitely be talking about how unfair that really is. Uh, and then, of course, 1963's The Raven with uh, a all-star cast of Vincent Price and Peter Lorre and, and Boris Karloff again. Two very different films from two very different eras. Uh, I'm anxious to hear your thoughts on The Raven, 
1963 because I know that's a first time viewing for you. And how the heck it, it took you this long in your life to see The Raven, I don't know. That's a, become an annual viewing around here. I actually have memories of that far preceding the 35 film. I have vivid memories of watching that back in the early 80s. So two fun, fun films. I'm sure we'll, we'll be adding some other wonderful trivia along the way as we talk about The Raven and The Raven. Yes, and I have a sneaking suspicion just from the vibe I've been getting as we were preparing. Yes, we do prepare, believe it or not, that I may be devil's advocate today. I, I think our opinions are going to be reversed on these, on both of them, but we'll see. Possibly, possibly, but I, I, I will come right out of the gate and say that I do enjoy both films. Yeah, oh, I do too. I do too. This is a fun double feature, and if as we enter the Halloween season, or now we are in the Halloween season by the time this episode goes live, these are two films that easily should go on, on a Halloween season viewing list. Well, let's call the meeting to order then. And I will introduce myself, after which you could introduce yourself. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. We've got a nice, solid section of old business this week. We've got three new members. I'd like to welcome Mark Phillips, Medi Tabot, and Witch Doctor Films. Rich, is Witch Doctor Films, is that Matthew? Yes, yes, Matthew Parmeter. Maybe he's already in the in under his name. I'm not sure, but uh, good to see uh, Matthew joining us in our group. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he does some filmmaking on the side. He does some some great artwork that he continues to post up on Facebook. So if this is if he has not joined the group previously, although I'm, I think he has, definitely welcome to all three of our new members. Does he work at a comic book store? Because he's always posting pictures in a comic book store of cool, cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He definitely is always posting, you know, cool 50s, 60s, 70s comics. Whatever he posts, yep, have that or I want that. And we have two pieces of feedback in two different formats. I think I'll do the written one first. This was actually on the Classic Horrors website Facebook page, not the group. And I do not know if Jared Garlock listens to the podcast. If you do, hey, Jared, we've been having a conversation and I appreciate your comment. He thanked me for everything on the website. And if you've been to the website, you know, I group it by different ages of horror. And that's sort of how do I categorize because I have to categorize everything. Everything has its place. He said he uses that as a guide to split up his horror movies and categorize them into something smaller than just one big horror section. That was awesome. I was just thrilled to hear that. But he did have me a, a question because we are classic horror and we pretty much end at 80s, which is actually a new edition. We call it the slasher age. He wanted to know what comes next. He thinks that after that Blair Witch Project in 99 ushered in an age of found footage movies, but he doesn't know what to call that space mm -hmm. between slasher and found footage. And he asked if I had any ideas. So I wanted to open it up and see if anyone has ideas the closest I came and I told him was it's got to be around Scream because that was, I think, the key movie of the 90s. And that was sort of self-referential. Ooh, that's a tough one. You know what I mean? A meta sort of self-aware or it could be the age of the I, I call it the CW age because that's when all these TV stars, young and good looking, were in horror movies in the 90s. Scream is probably the highlight. It was the game changer. It was something different and new. So if anyone's got any other ideas, please contribute on our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. 
And then we have a good old-fashioned voicemail from our friend Jonathan. He has some feedback on last episode, shares something that he's done recently, and even gives us a little preview thoughts on The Raven. Hey, Jeff and Rich, it's Jonathan. Just leaving a bit of feedback. I hope you're both well. But yeah, I just wanted to check in about your last episode and what you have coming up. I really enjoyed your Westworld, Future World episode. Westworld, I know pretty well. Grew up that place regularly on um, our local stations. Uh, Future World, I know I've seen, but it's been a long time, and um, I don't remember it well. But Westworld, the 19, I believe it's 73 version, is wonderful. What, what a great time. That stretch from early to mid-1970s, and I know you guys talked about this in a prior episode, that pre-Star Wars, as much as we all, most of us love Star Wars and those films, the sci-fi that came before were just just kind of a different breed and just really kind of probing a lot of of interesting issues and heady issues when it comes to the current and future state of the planet and of just human beings themselves. Films like The Andromeda Stream, Westworld, Silent Running, Rollerball, God, there's so many to, to even to, to rattle off. Those are just a few. And I wish we kind of hung on to some of those things afterwards. But, uh, oh, the other film is Soylent Green. And as you guys know, I actually attended a screening of Soylent Green this past weekend over at the Museum of the Moving Image, which is here in Astoria, Queens. And it was introduced by Bill Nye. And that's obviously a great film. Grim, to be sure, and grimy. <laughs> you do feel like you need to take a shower after watching it. Very important movie. It takes place in the future year. The future date of 2022. While it's not exactly spot on, there were still kind of a rough spot when it comes to the, you know, kind of the future health of this planet. And I'm specifically talking climate change, although that's not the only issue. What a great time for science fiction, early to, to mid-1970s, really. I know you guys have coming up, you're going to be talking about The Raven, the 1930s version with Carlos and Lugosi. 63 Corman version. I actually know a lot better than the 30s version with Carlos and Lugosi. I know that film's pretty well regarded. It's just been a while since I've seen it as well. The 63 version is a hoot. I'm I'm going to guess it's it's been a while since I read The Raven, but I'm going to guess it's not the most faithful adaptation. <laughs> but so much fun as several of those Corman um, Poe adaptations in the 60s were. Just a hoot. And Vincent Price, Peter Lorin, Barth Karloff, and Hazel Court are just really. Uh, chewing the scenery and just you can tell they're just having too much fun um and i really enjoy that i actually watched that with the guys i mean i think it was last halloween season she got a kick out it was not what she expected it's definitely um super fun definitely worth visiting again not the most faithful adaptation but definitely worth uh worth watching yeah we're just gearing up for uh shocktober actually it's october 1st now so we're diving into the season, and I'm not sure. What, I think Yasmin and I might start out by watching The Fly, the first fly of Vincent Price's. Yasmin hasn't seen it. She's been curious about it, so we're going to check that out. And otherwise, uh, we'll see what the lineup's going to be. It's just the best time of the year, isn't it? I mean, granted, with Monster Kids, you know, Halloween is really all year round, but it's extra special this time of year. Stella has uh, her costumes coming together. She's got an amazing fleece cape, a Dracula cape that we spent way too much money on, but we just couldn't resist on Etsy. It looks ridiculously cute, so she's going to be Dracula, a classic Dracula. We just now need to now uh, round up the rest of her outfits. We're really excited about that. Forgot to address the TV show, the HBO series for Westworld. And I know, Jeff, I believe you are, have watched it and are watching it. I think there's another season coming, but Richard, 
I don't think you have. Yeah, I watched the first season of that show and really enjoyed it. It's very, you know, high concept, pure sci-fi, high concept. I guess a fair amount of nuance and definitely some complexity. And I'm not always the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to, especially when plots get super complicated. And Westworld definitely gets complicated. I found myself being entertained but very confused at times, especially when you got late in that first season. I kind of lost track of it, and I understand they're coming up to a third or fourth season, so I definitely need to circle back to it. It sounds like Jeff is saying it's definitely worth, if you you know enjoyed what you've seen so far, worth continuing. It sounds like they've tried different things each season, which I really appreciate. Uh, I think I'm going to jump back into that. Hope you guys are doing well. Keep uh, knocking out of the park as you continue to do. We'll talk soon. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate your feedback on the Westworld TV show. It doesn't sound like you're quite as befuddled as I am, but it's somewhat reassuring that at least someone else out there doesn't understand it just uh, as I don't. And I wanted to say that I think your choice of The Fly for your first movie in the Halloween season is a good one, but I actually prefer Return of the Fly. We've talked about that before, I believe, the the makeup differences and the role that Vincent Price plays. So check out The Fly, sure, but I suggest also Return of the Fly. How cool is it that you got to see Soylent Green on the big screen? Absolutely, that, that would be a very cool experience. I'm with you right there is that I love that movie. I love Charlton Heston in that late 60s, early 70s sci-fi era Planet of the Apes and the Omega Man. I, I love that. And I love some of the 70s sci-fi films as well from this era. I think we talked about that last month when we did Westworld. It came from that same era. And I do feel like I've got to take a shower after Soylent Green. It looks so hot and, and so miserable in a lot of ways. And I've determined that if there's ever an apocalypse and we lose power and we lose air conditioning, I'm not going to survive. I'm not going to, I'm going to be grumpy, Richard. I'm not going to be happy. I mean, I'm going to be one of the first to go, or I'm going to kind of be one of those crazy people in the apocalypse because I don't have my damn air conditioning and I'm going to go nuts and just, you know, start killing everybody. Thank you, Jonathan, for calling in and letting us know what you've seen and sharing your thoughts. We appreciate that as always. Yes. So let me remind everyone how you can participate in the next club meeting by leaving feedback. You can comment like Jared did on one of our many Facebook pages, but the Facebook group page that I mentioned, the Classic Horrors Club podcast is where we get the most interaction amongst the club members. You can email either comments or a voice recording to classichorrors.club at gmail.com. And you can call in and, and pass the middleman and, and leave a message directly at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. I like how you change it up. I thrive on change and get bored when things are always the same. So good job. Now, see how nice I was? You were. You were. And that was... My spooky-ish version. Oh, okay. You know, I, I thought for a second if I had a practice, maybe I could have done like a Michael Jackson thriller-esque version, but... Okay, okay, let's... Yeah, then I got to start doing the dance and nobody wants to see that, yet, even though that would be scary for the season. Very good. Let's take a break and get back here and start talking about these movies. Sounds good. to do something. You've got to save my daughter's life. 
Dr. Volin. Can we get Dr. Volin? You're the one chance she's got. A month ago, I didn't know you. Now I owe my life to you. You mustn't see her again. This is my talisman, Mr. Chapman. I want you should change my face. I can do it. Maybe if a man looks ugly, he does ugly things. You are saying something profound. A man with a face so hideously ugly. No! And please try to remember, should anything happen to me, you remain the hideous monster that you are. The doctor is fascinated by death pain and how much pain a man can endure. Well, I do agree with him that Dr. Ballin is a little mad. I tell you, it's dangerous to be under this man's roof. <laughs> I can't use my hand to do it. Your hand is used to torture. Your hand must do it. My brain, your hand. You monster. You like to torture. I We were all in a tomb. There is now no way of getting up. You will live in this place forever and ever. It will be the perfect marriage. You will never be separated. Never. When gangster Edward Bateman storms into Dr. Richard Bolland's office demanding plastic surgery, the sadistic doctor instead maims him in order to manipulate him into doing his bidding. This includes eliminating two obstacles between him and the woman he obsessively loves, her father and her fiancé. In a Poe-inspired torture chamber, Dr. Bolland takes Jean Thatcher prisoner and straps her father, Judge Thatcher, on a slab of stone as a pendulum swings closer and closer and closer. The Raven was written by a host of characters, but one is is mainly credited, David Boehm. We'll talk about that, or at least that's a point I want to talk about. Based on the poem by Edgar Allan Poe, I would say more suggested by or inspired by I think that's that they actually said suggested by you. Both of these movies are really not true adaptations of the poem, but they definitely have Poe involved in one way or another. Poe is probably more involved in this film and the Raven as a character per se is more involved in in our second. I would agree. Directed by Lou Landers, starring, of course, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Running time, a nice 61 minutes. Produced by Universal Pictures and released by Universal Pictures on July 8th, 1935. Richard, what did you think of The Raven? For starters, yeah, the perfect running time for this film. Anything more and you would have had some padding. It was the perfect script for the perfect running time. One of the shorter Universal horror films. I I think that there's only... Uh, a couple of other films from this time period that came really that close to being that short. I love this movie right there, smack dab in the middle of the thirties in, in universal horror is in its golden age, if you will. My first viewing of this, 
was probably the, I want to say 1990-ish. I had this on VHS cassette. I did a blind buy on it. I'd never seen it before. Bought it when they put it out in their universal collection. Bought it at the Suncoast Motion Picture Company in Dallas. We used to live in, in Paris, Texas. We were two hours away. We would occasionally go to Dallas on a Sunday. Go to the big city. Go to the big city. It was a four-hour round trip to go and eat somewhere other than the few options we had in Paris and go to a mall. I remember loving it. What's not to love? You got Karloff and Lugosi, and it's a fun story. This film centers on Dr. Volan, a.k.a. Bell Lugosi, his obsession with Poe. You do get to hear The Raven presented in a couple of different ways, right? At one point early on in the film, and then we get a special dance version, an interpretive dance version of The Raven, which is unique. So it's featured prominently. The concept of of Poe's torture chambers is really the whole centerpiece of the film. The darkness that can be Edgar Allan Poe and Dr. Vollen's obsession with it, well, leads him down a dark path. What are your initial thoughts on The Raven? I love it. And this is where I thought it might get controversial because I actually enjoy it more than The Black Cat. Oh. Most people, Black Cat is perfection. For some reason, I think this is a, I know a lot of dark things happen, but I think it's a tad lighter. There's a little more action. It goes by faster. There's, I I just enjoy watching it. They're both great movies, but I really enjoy watching The Raven. I wanted to mention that I listened, because I have seen it so many times, to the commentary by Gary Rhodes, who's written books and is a film historian and an expert. I got several good tidbits that I'll throw in here and there. But one of the things he said, and you mentioned this is about a man that he's a fan of Poe, I guess you'd say. I mean, that's not the right word, but it's about a man who likes Poe and is a little bit obsessed with him. Gary Rhodes said that this is the first time in a, in a film that the main character has been a horror fan. Now, I was trying to think. I, I think that's got to be right, because I can't think of any film prior to this. I mean, horror movies themselves were not that old at this point. Well, and it's not necessarily movies, but just horror in general. He's the first monster kid. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I may regret this. This is off of hand and just watching it again recently. But I really think it could be one of Lugosi's best performances. His character is so has so many layers and is so egotistical, so sadistic. And he has reactions in this movie that are both extreme and both very subtle. I really enjoy watching him in this probably than any other film that he did. This is one of his best, clearly an opportunity for him to, to take the, the lead in a, in a list film. I mean, you know, I mean, it's probably B list, I guess at the time, he was still doing some some very B-grade, almost C or Z-grade films. You know, and you take a look at like what he did in 1935, three other films that were genre films. You got Mark of the Vampire that year, which was a big MGM production. And then you've got a, a much lesser production in Phantom Ship, which is Lugosi's Hammer film, technically. It's, it is a Hammer production. Yeah. And then you've got a very low level, now public domain flick, Murder by Television. That's his slumming film for the year compared to some of these others. So he was kind of all over 
the board. And I think it's telling because when you look at what Karloff did in the same year, he was doing A-list entertainment. Besides, this was probably, I think, his lesser effort of the three by far because you've got Bride of Frankenstein and The Black Room, which I love The Black Room. Well, he was clearly the lead in Black Room and, and Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's he's the monster. So this one, he gets top billing, but it's it's certainly not fair that he gets top billing. This is Lugosi's film, and he should have got top billing. History has it, supposedly, the book Universal Horrors by Tom Weaver and Michael and John Brunus. They talk about Lugosi's resentment. He had the lead role in this film, and he should have been top billed. You know, already at this point, Karloff had become the star at Universal and Lugosi, whether directly or indirectly paying the price for his post-Dracula film choices and in the path that his career was already beginning to take. This movie should have opened some other doors for him. I mean, certainly when you look at this and like Mark of the Vampire in the same year, this should have taken Lugosi in a different direction. Unfortunately, his path, he was definitely headed down a poverty row path. And it's, it's really unfair because he really shines, absolutely shines in this movie. Okay, I do have an update. Richard, we are both correct. All right. Title card for the movie does say Karloff and Lugosi. However, the movie to- poster and advertising materials, it was adverti- advertised as Karloff and Bella Lugosi. So we were both right. So clearly, we both deserve movies from Kino Lorbert. So you buy me three, I'll buy you. Three. I was thinking our listeners clearly should, you know. So who called in with voicemail this week? You know, we'll just do this randomly and pick Jonathan. Congratulations, you are the winner. You get to buy us six movies of our. No, I'm kidding. By the way, Gary Rhodes thing. Well, I, I take it back. You aren't really talking about a rivalry between Karloff and Lugosi. You're just talking more about how Lugosi always got the short end of the stick. I want to bring up a point real quick. When I watched this movie, I went to IMDb to look at their trivia section. And, you know, you got to take that with a grain of salt. Some of the stuff we know is, is true. And some stuff you got to, well, you know, there's really nothing. When I went that night to look at IMDb, there was two points of trivia that angered me. Oh, you know, that stuff is submitted by IMDb users and stuff a lot of times. And so someone had submitted this as legit trivia, talking about what a horrible person Karloff was, you know, how jealous he was of Lugosi. It went down this whole path that Karloff was actually rude and mean and bitter. And there was so much falsehood in these in these two bullet points that were clearly written by the same person, clearly written by somebody who is a big Lugosi fan and clearly hated Karloff. How does somebody go about the process of submitting this to IMDb and saying, look, this is false and it needs to be deleted? You know that when I checked this two days ago, it's gone. Those bullet points are thankfully gone. So I know a lot of people say sometimes people in in like IMDb or whatever, they don't really pay attention. They don't care. Sometimes they do. And this was a case where I know what I read about a week earlier. And thankfully, as of a couple of days ago, that was gone. Oh, good. As Universal Horrors book states, there was resentment with Karloff being billed 
first, but I don't think there was resentment directed towards Karloff because Karloff, everything that, that I know, that he didn't fuel any of that. And in fact, Karloff, if anything, kind of felt pity for the, for the path that Lugosi's career took. Karloff was doing what the studios were, were wanting him to do. Having resentment towards Karloff getting top billing is not resentment towards Karloff. It's resentment at Universal for choosing to put him top billing when and Lugosi's name at least is in the same. Yeah, I don't think Karloff's name is bigger than Lugosi's on that opening title card, but it, yeah, they clearly should have been reversed. Gary Rhodes said that he thinks the whole subject of them having a rivalry is overblown and he doesn't believe it either. At some point, and I don't know if you're still are on a thread here, but I do, I want to talk more about the characters, especially Dr. Volan and the Halagosi plays him. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I mentioned he has a big ego. Judge Thatcher wants him to come help his daughter who's been in a car accident and he just doesn't want anything to do with it. And he's, you know, offering him money, anything he can do. And what gets him to finally do it is that Judge Thatcher says, they say you're the only one. And Lugosi says, so they do say very well, fed by his ego that other people are talking about him and saying he's the best. Yeah, that ego was stroked right there with that comment. He doesn't care at all about you know the girl or anything. No. And so then later she is obviously cured and he, he sort of gets a thing for her. And at one point, uh, Gene Thatcher says to him, you're not only a great surgeon, but a great musician too. Extraordinary man. You're almost not a man. Almost. And he interrupts and says, a god. Yeah. God complex much? And this is where I thought, it does take a leap, right? From there, there's a there's kind of a big time jump because you've got where she's basically on the operating table. And then all of a sudden it kind of leaps to where they're sitting by the fire and she's clearly better. And But I, I felt she was leading him on. I mean, she's there at his house and he's, I don't know, to me, this is this is wooing going on here, but he's playing the organ, you know, as she's sitting by the fire. That would certainly get me going. I don't know. But she's sitting there and she's kind of like, and it's not just like she's sitting. She's kind of lounging. She's got her feet up. She's very comfortable in that setting. Either she was incredibly naive. She's feeding into that whole godlike complex and, you know, you're amazing. You're wonderful. And it's only after he then gets really close to her, you know, that she kind of then almost like realizes once she knew how he felt, then you, you would have thought that she should have totally said, well, no, I'm going to I'm going to go this path. I'm not going to I'm not going to he's thinking something else and I'm engaged to be married or whatever. I need to go off and do this. But she doesn't. Right. Because now she's done this whole interpretive dance and and well you're going to be there and I'm going to be doing special surprise for you. I think there was some infatuation there because it's that classic case right of the doctor and he falling in love with the doctor. I don't say necessarily she was falling in love, but I think she was infatuated. I'm not saying she asked for what came, you know, next, but she was naive, I guess is where I'm going. She surely was blind to to what was his intent. He was in love with her, but from the outside looking in, I'm like, he's not a well man. He's got some issues. I would just add to that. I do think she was naive. She's young and innocent. She has owes him her life for saving her life. 
And isn't there a point where either she tells her father or the father tells her, hey, I'm suspicious of his motives? It might even be Jean that says to her father, I think he likes me more than, you know. Well, there's that one scene, I think, right before it, right, where, and again, this is after she's realized his intent. I think it's the the night of the show where she's on the left hand of the screen, Lugosi's on the right hand, and in the center, you've got the judge, and she's saying things, and Lugosi's looking at her saying things, and that's when the judge realizes, hey, this doctor's got some feelings for my daughter. And she was still acting very naive in that because she already knew at that point his feelings. And I think she was feeding into that, probably not intently, but she was definitely continuing to do that. Yeah. And then it was after that, the party invitation, the judge warned his daughter, do not go to that party. And she did. Now, the thing we haven't mentioned is she's engaged to be married. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And this is one of Lugosi's subtle reactions Lugosi thinks that he can hire her fiance to work for him so he can keep his eye on him and kind of keep him away from Jean. Well, it backfires because Jerry, the fiance, is grateful to Lugosi and says, we may even be able to get married sooner. There's a reaction that Lugosi has that's just classic. It's very similar to when he's talking to the judge, when the judge goes to his house and it kind of confronts him with that. We don't want anything to go on between you and, and Gene, you know, you certainly understand that, don't you? And of course, Lagosi is sitting there and he's at his desk and he like he's holding the glass in his hand and he breaks the glass. And I think that's the moment where Judge fully understands what he's dealing with here. This is not just an infatuation, but he's clearly in, in love with Gene. And so what he saw and what he thought clearly was then the lines are clearly drawn at that point because Lugosi's not going to back down. Then Lugosi is beginning to formulate a plan. We've also got the other story going on at that point where he is then takes on the character of Edmund Bateman to do his bidding. But even then, I think once he initially meets up with Bateman, who is Karloff's character, it isn't until Karloff says something that makes him realize that he could oh, if you're, if you're ugly, then you commit bad things. And then he immediately, you can just see the little light bulb go off above his head. Yeah, he's coming up with a plan to, to turn Bateman into someone hideous who will then just want and have no other choice but to do horrible things. Ultimately, it doesn't quite work out the way that Lugosi had wanted because he definitely does a number on Bateman, which is kind of funny, right? He's like, you know, it, it'll take 15 minutes. I'm going to do this plastic surgery. You'll be an entirely different man, and, and it'll take 15 minutes. That's not modern days. That, you know, 15 minutes is, is uh, you'll, you'll be in the waiting room longer than 15 minutes. Really like that about Karloff's character, that the whole, I had that line down, I won't repeat it, but, you know, about an ugly man doing ugly things. And he says he doesn't want to do bad things. So he's like gangster with a heart of gold. And that's really when we, Lugosi's sadism kicks in, not to mention just the fact that he maims him, but rather than give him a hand mirror or something you do when people get unwrapped from surgery, he has a wall of mirrors and one by one pulls the curtain back so that he can see in multiple mirrors his appearance. And then he stands above looking down is just 
giggling maniacally. This is interesting because when you compare The Raven and The Black Cat, the two films, of course, that came out, you know, essentially back to back. In The Black Cat, you've got Karloff is, is clearly the villain of the piece. And Lugosi ultimately is gaining revenge for the wrong that was done to him. Karloff is the, the sadistic one. But ultimately, you know, Lugosi goes pretty, pretty sadistic at the end of that movie. But ultimately, you kind of do feel sorry for Lugosi, even though Lugosi goes very sadistic at the end of that movie. It's very clearly defined. Karloff's the villain. Lugosi's our pseudo hero. Here, the roles are, are reversed because right from the, the onset, you know that Lugosi, I mean, the very first scene, he's obsessed with Poe. Yeah, Lugosi's not the hero of this film. Karloff, right from that scene where he's talking to Lugosi, he doesn't want to do bad things. He's done bad things. He acknowledges that, but he doesn't want to be that person. He wants to change. And if he would have been given a chance, if he would have met a good doctor to give him a new face, I get the feeling that Karloff may have, have gone off and been a good person. He did bad things, but he got a second chance. Lugosi robs him of that because he destroys his face and turns him into a monster. At that point, there's sympathy for Karloff's character because you didn't ask for any of this. Very much the roles are reversed as you get into that final act where who's getting revenge on who is, is clearly played out. The, the total opposite of what we saw in, in The Black Cat. Greg Mank, in his book, Karloff and Lugosi, according to that, Karloff received $10,000 for the film, which, I mean, sounds paltry by today's standards, but back then, that was damn good money. Lugosi got half that. He got $5,000. And honestly, Karloff did half the work than Lugosi did for this film. Lester Matthews got $1,153, whereas Irene Ware got $625. Oh, my goodness. And clearly, she had you know, a much more substantial role than him, but she was a woman. And Lester Matthews, he had done some stuff at this point, but so had she. And I, if you look at their filmography, they really were very much equals. He stayed in films a lot longer. She left. Samuel S. Hines, who had clearly been established, and we've seen him in other things. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He also got like $1,300. Lugosi clearly got more than them, but he got half of what Karloff did, and that's not fair either. A couple of things I want to say about that scene, the maiming scene. As Karloff is looking in the mirrors and he pulls his gun and starts shooting him, that's fine. This is reassuring to me. I When I wrote about this for my site a while back, I said, at one point, he even growls like the Frankenstein monster. Oh, yeah. Gary Rhodes points that out as well. So like, I wasn't the only one that caught that. There, There is a moment where he growls. Yeah, he, he was definitely channeling the monster there. Yeah. And then this was sort of, Gary Rhodes called it like ripped out of the headlines because in 1934, in July, there were news reports in the papers of gangsters using plastic surgery so that they could hide from the authorities. It's interesting I don't see it as much as like a gangster movie. There's a gangster in it, but, you know, there aren't shootouts and people talking funny. But it is sort of a merger of those two genres, which in the 30s were the most popular genres, gangster films and horror movies. I want to talk for a second about the Raven dance. (laughs) Must we? (laughs) That is based on an actual thing called the Raven dance. And I cannot remember her name, but there was a female performer who 
it was a big show. She would go to movie theaters and do this raven dance. I don't know how similar it was, like I said, but it was a real thing. I did not know that. I, I've always, I'm not an interpretive dance kind of guy. <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not, maybe that's a theme we could do for, for a yes. future episode. Poe was definitely, he was in pop culture to an extent. I mean, he's been elevated as the decades of, as wore on. And it, I, I remember reading about how there was definitely a fascination with, amongst other writers, you know, who, of course, revered his works. And very sad. Poe didn't live to see any of that. I have two questions for you, Richard. I haven't quite made my mind up on this. What do you think of the makeup, Karloff's makeup? It's not good, to be honest, compared to like when you look at like the monster, right? Or the mummy, you know, there was some great makeup being done at this time period. It looked cheap, not very convincing. You know, the the eye clearly is, is you know, his right eye is clearly fake. Uh, even like when you when you see the neck, there's very clearly the definition of that's makeup and that's real, which wouldn't have been that clearly defined, even if the whole process of the, well, I'm going to sever this nerve and it's going to allow me to mold your face into this or that. Yeah, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have done it that way. The makeup is uncredited, but I do believe Jack Pierce was involved. So that is a little disappointing. It doesn't take away my enjoyment. No. My other question is the significance of the clock that they always show when they're down in the cellar. And maybe it's because I didn't watch, I was watching the commentary this time, but I don't remember. It's like a, a countdown to something where they, was that part of the plot? Can I even have it in my notes? Like now it's 1120, now it's 1130. They keep cutting to the clock. I think it was part of the plot, but I'm sitting here drawing a blank as to yeah i don't know if they had like until midnight to do something or he was going to do this anyway i it must be otherwise i wouldn't have been tracking every time they showed the clock well yeah and it's horrible we just saw it and we're drawing a blank on that you want to talk about the cast well yeah so we've talked about carloff and lugosi just wanted to share some things lester matthews played dr jerry halden the fiance very prolific, 216 film credits. Did a lot of stuff. Werewolf of London, 1935. The Mysterious Mr. Moto from 1938, part of that crime series with Peter Lorre. He was in The Invisible Man's Revenge in 44. Uh, Son of Dr. Jekyll in 51. Man in the Attic in 53. He played the character of Nayland Smith, kind of the hero of the piece, in the Adventures of Fu Manchu, 1956 television series. And actually, right up till the end of his career, the next to last film he did was a movie called Hollywood Horror House in 1970, which I can't honestly say I've seen or heard of. Hmm. He did one more film after that, and then he uh, apparently retired from acting, died in 1975 at the age of 75. Irene Ware played Gene Thatcher. Only did 29 films, and about the only other genre film she did, interestingly enough, also starred Bella Lugosi. She was in Shandu the Magician in 1932, in which Lugosi plays the villain of that, and then he would, two years later, play the lead role in the Shandu the Magician chapter serial, uh, which I think was called The Return of Shandu in 1934. Samuel S. Hines, of course, played Judge Thatcher. I always know him as Pa Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. 
watch that every holiday season. But he did do a few other genre films. He was in Man-Made Monster in 1941, Son of Dracula in 43, The Strange Case of Dr. R.X. in 1942, Murders in the Zoo in 1933 as well. He was uncredited, I think, in that film, but he played one of the attendees at that party in the zoo, which turned out rather poorly. Ah, my Star Trek reference. Ian Wolfe played Colonel Bertram Grant, very prolific character actor, 304 credits. The Raven was actually only his fifth movie, so he was a relatively young man at this point. He was also in Mad Love in 1935, The Return of Dr. X in 1939, Alfred Hitchcock's Saboteur in 42, Sherlock Holmes in 1942, along with several other Sherlock Holmes films playing different characters. He was also in The Invisible Man's Revenge in 44. He was also in Diary of a Madman in 1963 with Vincent Price. Even on into the 70s, he was in films like THX 1138, Night Gallery, and yes, two episodes of Star Trek in the 1960s. He played Septimus in the second season episode, Bread and Circuses, and the character of Mr. Ataz, the librarian, A2Z, Mr. Ataz, in uh, the next to last episode of Star Trek, All Our Yesterdays. I am impressed. I never would have thought in 1935 movie you'd find a Star Trek reference. Give me a little more credit. I'm going to find it. I, Doctor Who is always a stretch, and I oftentimes admit I, I might be missing something. Screenplay by David Boehm and seven other uncredited writers. I think you had something to share. Just Gary Rhodes talked about how this was in development for a long time and they kept bringing in other writers and their issue was trying to adapt the poem. Most of Poe's, well, I, know, I wouldn't even say that, but The Raven at least is bare bones and it's pit in the pendulum too. There are like a center event, but we don't know how people got there or, and so you have to build a story around that. So they really had difficulty with that. I I would note that one of the writers involved at one point was Guy Endor, who wrote The Werewolf of Paris, which Hammer's Curse of the Werewolf is based on. This was the one out of the group that did get the credit, even though, yeah, and I can't remember the history, but I mean, for at least a couple of years, this was in development. There was a post in the trade papers that The Raven was coming out one or two years before they even finished the script. Besides this film, the other film he's really well known for is a movie called A Guy Named Joe. In 1943, starring Spencer Tracy and Irene Dunn, that was remade as a movie called Always in 1989 with Richard Dreyfuss and Holly Hunter. And it dealt with basically a character coming back from the dead, kind of a ghost character to kind of take care of business that was left unfinished and about his girlfriend who's still here and falling in love with another pilot I've never seen the original. I remember seeing Always when it came out. Directed by Spielberg. If I recall at the time, they really played up about how that was a guy named Joe was one of Spielberg's favorite movies and had wanted to remake it. I think at the time I then I did watch it when I found that out. I don't remember a thing about it or Always for that. <laughs> Finally, last but not least, directed by Lou Landers, who did some other genre related films. Uh, the Boogeyman Will Get You in 1942, great horror comedy with Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre. The Return of the Vampire in 43, another Lugosi film. He did lots of B films, lots of TV work. His last film was actually uh, a horror movie called Terrified in 1963. It was released after he died in 1962 at the age of 61. I don't know what he died of, obviously died at a young age. 
This film apparently, because of its more graphic nature, I guess, for the time, the British film censors basically said enough is enough and decided to withdraw any further horror films from being shown in the UK for a period of time. That's a great segue, and you didn't even know it, because I want to talk about the reception and the release of this film, and this is all information from Gary Rhodes, and I just find it fascinating, and I'd like to look up his books or see if he's written about this at length. Movies being released at that time were very, very different, and of course, yes, we did have the censorship issue, and what I didn't realize... I knew this, but I forgot. Each state had its own authority to edit the film as they wished. Uh So you could see different versions here and there. And he talks about some of the scenes that they cut out. And it's like, you've got a 60-minute movie and you cut out these graphic scenes. What do you got left? I mean, how do you even know what happened? Anyway, a couple of interesting things. The, I don't know who it was, sent a notice to theaters and said that it was pretty rough. So they should use their judgment about showing it on Sundays. And this goes on to a different tangent because he talks about the blue laws, which I guess were related to really being able to open your business or do anything on Sunday. And of all these states and all the different cuts that he talks about, would you believe a state that did not touch it and aired it as is Kansas, (laughs) which is so backwards, chopped the heck out of other movies and did not on this one for some reason. And also the the distribution business was so different. And, you know, we talk about how much a movie made and we think in terms of today, like there's either worldwide or nationwide, but he didn't point this out exactly, but it just made me think that when you talk about a movie making money back in this age, it could have only been in a couple of theaters. Like, for example, uh, he called out the Roxy Theater, I believe in Los Angeles, how it broke all records at that theater. And I even think back about the the famous double feature years later with Frankenstein and Dracula with people lined up. You know, that was like in New York. That wasn't like every town across America. It's just interesting to me how they measured success and that really a filmmaking money back then could have been attributed to, well, I'm sure it is the same way today, but we don't report it that way. You know, back then, they their business really could depend on what market they were in. A Baltimore theater took a little page uh, out of or William Castle took a little page out of them. They had a lot of ballyhoo for the movie. They offered their patrons, if they were too scared, they had objects that they could borrow for short term. And they were just funny things like rolling pins so they could flatten their goose pimples. (laughs) Things like that, puns on that. And uh, I thought that was very funny. Alabama, it tanked. You want to know why? I don't know why. The circus was in town. (laughs) Think about that. If you're a small town in the 30s, You know, everyone's going to the circus. No one's going to the movie. No. And then one last little bit about its business. And I don't know. It's interesting that he called out Kansas. He also calls out Kansas City. The Raven did below average business in Kansas City. (laughs) It is interesting to hear that. My one last thing is just a a bit more about Poe and in the movies at this time. Gary Rhodes points out there were three like main actors associated with Poe. One of them I, I cannot find in my note, but was in the silent days. There were some silent Poe movies, and there was a particular actor that was in several of them. Second, Bella Lugosi, because, of course, he did Murders in the Rue Morgue, Black Cat, Raven. And then the third being, of course, Vincent Price. Supposedly, in 1937, so two years after The Raven came out, there was a script for The Pit and the Pendulum. And I don't recall if it was 
with Karloff or Lugosi, but that was during the Breen period. The code had been installed and they read the script and they said, there is not one thing in here that is acceptable. And the movie was never made. Then in 1938, a year later, and remember how what a hard time they had getting a script for this Raven. Supposedly, they thought of a new angle and they wanted to do a remake of it two years later with Karloff and Lugosi. And that didn't happen, of course, but that kind of morphed and that ended up becoming the movie The Strange Door. Been a while since I've seen that, but supposedly there's similarities in it. And then finally, in 1953, Dave Diamond and the original writer, Boehm, they had a script for The Raven, coincidentally starring Vincent Price. But that is another effort that did not actually see fruition. Interesting. I didn't know about all those different almost versions of the Raven. It's a shame we didn't really have much to say about this movie. (laughs) I don't know on the streaming of this one. I know that some Universal films get added to Peacock in the month of October. As we record this, it's October 1st, so I did not do a, a search on Peacock to see if it's available there or not. But I do know that it's it's easy to find. You can get it on Blu-ray. It's in the Universal Horror Collection Volume 1 for about $42 right now. You also get that with The Black Cat, The Invisible Ray, and Black Friday, all of which are Karloff Lugosi films. You can also get all four of those films on DVD for $10. So very cheap, very easy to find. My version that I watched was the Karloff Lugosi collection that came out on DVD. Oh my gosh, 15 years ago now, probably closer to maybe 20. It's hard to believe, but probably that long ago. This movie is easily out there. and I give it a thumbs up. It's definitely a classic, and uh, you definitely should check it out. And just to be clear, you like the Black Cat better? Oh, after sitting here and, and, and revisiting The Raven and talking about it, I don't know. For the longest time, I would say Black Cat was always my favorite. But I've learned to really appreciate some of the things in The Raven. I, I think I would be willing to say I look at it on equal grounds now. Well, good. That's improvement. I look at the Black Cat as more artistic and there's a lot of interesting things in it, but I think the Raven is just more entertaining. Oh, I got to tell my favorite scene. In this house, there's a room that can lower, he can lower it down into his dungeon. He puts Jean in it and she goes down and then her fiance is running around like crazy looking for her and he flings open the door of her bedroom, which of course isn't there now, and he ends up hanging by the doorknob. I just love that. You wouldn't have seen that in The Black Cat. So that's kind of my example of how it, it is just, it's more entertainment than it is art. Well, and I actually read that supposedly people laughed when that happened in the theaters. You know, that could be a, laughter as a release of tension or suspense. Could be, yeah. I mean, it is funny, but yet it's it's not funny. Haha, it's just surprising. You didn't expect it. Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about the other Raven. Hands are so cold. 
A woman whose desires transcend reality. The mysterious powers of black magic. These you will explore. Now, what is it you need? You got some dried blood off from a bath in the house? The raven will take you careening through the darkest of dangers. Into the ominous mystery of a master magician's evil castle. <gasps> Afraid, my dear? I offer you a choice. The secret of your hand manipulations or this against this. Well, don't just stand there. Do something. This is no answer. Very well, then. Adieu to the death. Sixteenth century magicians, Dr. Craven and Dr. Bedlow, travel to the castle of a third magician, Dr. Scarabus, so that Craven can look for his dead wife and Bedlow can retrieve the equipment he left, which Scarabus turned him into a raven. While there, they enter a web of mystery, lies, and deceit that culminates in a battle to the death to determine who is worthy of being the Grand Master. The winner learns a valuable lesson. You cannot fight evil by hiding from it. Richard, one of the things I like about The Raven from 1963 is the year 1963. What can you tell us about entertainment in that year? Entertainment-wise, it might be somebody's birthday. It might be two people's birthday because both you and Carla were born in 1963. You have a really strong connection because you were born on February 16th, 1963, and that just happened to be a Saturday, three weeks after our next film, The Raven, hit the theater. So I decided we're going to be taking a look at that particular weekend because clearly, I've got to say, it, it's the second most important weekend out of that year. I got to live with, you know, Carlin. I would not argue that. Let's start off with the top 10 songs for the week ending Saturday, February 16th, 1963. And some of those I'm going to know, some of these I'm not going to know. See what you know and what you don't know. Number 10, Up on the Roof by The Drifters. Fairly popular song. Now, number nine, I'm going to freely admit, I don't believe I've ever heard this before. If I have, I, I'm not connecting. Loop de Loop by Johnny Thunder. Number eight, You've Really Got a Hold on Me by The Miracles. And this was, of course, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. This was before they put Smokey's name in the title of the group. Number seven, The Night Has a Thousand Eyes by Bobby V. Uh, number six, another one, From a Jack to a King by Ned Miller. Number five, 
Rhythm of the Rain by the Cascades. Number four, I'm pretty sure I've heard this one, Ruby Baby by Dion. Number three, Walk Like a Man by the Four Seasons. Number two, Walk Right In by the Rooftop Singers. And number one, Hey Paula by Paul and Paula. At the movies for the weekend of February 16th, number one in its eighth week of release and number one out of an eventual two weeks. So it took a while for it to reach the number one spot, a true classic to kill a mockingbird. On television back then, not every hour of primetime television apparently was filled automatically by the networks. It was left up to the local channels. I don't think I knew that before. If that is incorrect information, then somebody called me out on it and let me know otherwise. All I can tell you is that on ABC, three of the choices that the network was offering up that night was a series called The Gallant Men, which was kind of a uh, war drama, kind of like you think in like combat or the Rat Patrol. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the short-lived television series based on the classic film, starring Fess Parker in his post-Davy Crockett, pre-Daniel Boone era. And then a, a game show called Make That Spare. Have you ever watched bowling back in the early days of television, back in the 70s, when we didn't have very many options and it was a Sunday afternoon and bowling was on? I can say when I was younger, I probably watched a fishing show or two and there just wasn't anything else on. Uh, okay, over at NBC, we had one show I've never heard of, one I'm familiar with, a show called Sam Benedict, and a show called, which I am familiar with this one, The Joey Bishop Show. CBS had probably the best lineup of the night, in my opinion. You had The Defenders, which I've never seen, but I've always been familiar with for a long time now, starring a very young pre-Brady bunch, Robert Reed and E.G. Marshall, playing lawyers. You all said two very popular Westerns, Have a Gun, Will Travel, and Gunsmoke. That was the options that you had. If you didn't want to go to the movies, you could listen to music. You could, maybe if you didn't want to see The Raven, you could see To Kill a Mockingbird, or you had some television choices. 1963, musically, was at a, at a time where we were just right on the cusp of Beatlemania and the British Invasion and music was going to be changing a lot over the next three to five years. There'd be some pretty big changes in music. 63, you're still getting that kind of leftover 1950s style music. There was some, some changes happening, but not really quite yet. That's what was happening in 1963. Yeah! Richard, when you read our synopsis, it makes it sound like a very dark, scary movie. I didn't realize that when I was writing it, but this definitely has a light touch. The Raven, 1963, written by Richard Matheson, directed by Roger Corman. It runs 86 minutes, produced by Alta Vista Productions and released by American International Pictures on January 25th, 1963. 
What do you think about it? I love this movie. We do our special video later on in the month. This was something that I probably would have talked about had we not talked about it in this particular episode. So I'm not going to kind of do a double dip there. But this is an annual viewing for me. It has been for a while. I have vivid memories of this film in the early 80s, shortly after we got cable television, watching it on, I think, like a Saturday afternoon. Of course, I loved Vincent Price. So I was instantly hooked. I loved Karloff. Of course, I knew who Peter Lorre was. So I loved loved Peter Lorre. I probably really didn't give Jack Nicholson a a second thought. Even though Jack Nicholson was big in the mainstream, I probably hadn't seen very much of Jack Nicholson by that point. Uh, I probably recognized him, you know, but other than that, and I probably wouldn't have known who Hazel Court was at that early viewing. This is a movie that I was one of my earliest films that I bought on VHS. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I owned it on DVD. Now I'm very thankful that I have it on Blu-ray from uh, the Shout Factory, the Vincent Price Collection. Uh, this was volume two, which is now currently out of print. When they put these films out, the Vincent Price Collection Volumes 1 and 2 initially had introductions of Vincent Price from Iowa Public Television from the 1980s. They brought Vincent Price in to do a series. I can't remember how many movies in the series, but it was like quite a few weeks where they brought him in to do the introductions. And they filmed it at like a, a mansion there. And so, you know, a big old mansion, you know, big, wonderful fireplace and very atmospheric and filmed it, you know, I think over the course of perhaps one day, maybe a couple of days, they didn't have Vincent Price for a long period of time. So they, they really kind of cranked these out. And I love those introductions. Unfortunately, when Shout Factory added those to these Blu-rays, they were only licensed for a certain period of time. And Volume 1 went out of print very, very quickly. Since have reissued Volume 1, which I thankfully was able to get, but they don't have the introductions on them anymore. Volume 2 has gone out of print because, again, it featured some of the introductions. This movie in particular has the Iowa Public Television introduction with Vincent Price, which I think is a lot of fun. A nice little extra to have. I'll just interject. Those aren't just like brief introductions. I was surprised how long it was. And also, I didn't realize he comes back at the end and talks about it as he well. He does. Yeah. I mean, this is like a full on. He's he's almost like a horror host in a way. I mean, he's introducing, offering lots of recollections and some trivia, you know, about the about the production. And, and it's uh, they're wonderful. The person who was the producer behind those introductions is very protective of those. The fact that the master tapes still exist, and I don't even know if they exist for all the movies. It's not something that has circulated. And in fact, there was a period of time where I think people didn't even know they existed and were shocked to know that they did. That's how I watched it. I love it. To me, it's fun. It's lighthearted. So different than the first film. It's hard to compare the two because they're really two different types of films. Vincent Price is... At his most Vincent Priciest, you know, he is just he's being just kind of lighthearted and whimsical and just doing what he does quite well. And, and Karloff, you know, entering in the, into the, the last decade of his life here, he's obviously older. He's not as spry as he used to be, which actually plays a part in the film. 
What about you? What's your, what's your, this is a first time viewing for you. Right. And this would be a good time to interject that if you watch our video companion on the YouTube channel, I kind of explain why I have not watched. I'm not going to repeat that here. If you want to know that story, no, no. check yeah, out our YouTube You want the channel. rest of the story? You got to go yeah, there. That's right. It's going to be long enough. I don't need to repeat things that have been said. <laughs> would I be kicked off the podcast if I just said I thought it was eh? Yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> okay, it's just me for the rest of the podcast. Yeah, that was a. It might not play well on the podcast. That was the visual of me walking off camera. No. You know, I have this thing with horror comedies. You know, I just struggle with them. Yeah. And I hate. I don't know if that's really what you'd even call it. Uh, speaking of Vincent Price's introduction, he mentioned that it was a serious script, but when those actors got together and did a read through, they decided to play it for laughs. And I'm sure it's a little more. I don't know. Did he mention that they uh, improvised or anything? Well, yes. Peter Laurie would ad lib quite substantially. Price would go along with it. Karloff hated that yeah. because Karloff was very much know your script and 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 go with that. And that may be why sometimes I think there are certain people who, from this time period, especially, there's a few people out there who don't have warm things to say about Karloff because he was rather meticulous when it came to, to acting and he he didn't really appreciate a carefree set. I think the actress from Die Monster Die, for example, has said a few things where he really wasn't that pleasant to work with. And also, I think you got to understand as we were into the 60s, Karloff's, you know, he's obviously an older man, but he's also dealing with some tremendous back pain, which became debilitating and really even was at this point you can see that in the way he moves around and walks around in this film. And it only would get progressively worse to the point where like by die monster die, he was in a wheelchair, but he continued to act because he loved it. Now he was not a crotchety old man by any means, but he was dealing with some pain. And so when it came to frivolity, he was wanting to be serious on the set. Peter Laurie at this point, I don't think he really cared. He just wanted to have fun and Price was very much adaptable to whatever the situation. I, I read several things about how Price could, he could go with somebody carefree and ad-libbing, or he could stick to the script, but he was always gentleman on the set and, and however the environment was, he would adapt to it. Karloff, probably not so much by this point. There are very funny parts. I have a list of scenes I want to make sure we talk about because they are funny, but we've got that. And I don't even know if you'd call it horror. I don't even know if it's a horror comedy. It's more a comedy comedy. The other thing is, too, and this is I'm realizing more and more about myself, and this sounds ridiculous, but magic to me, I don't really like movies about magic and witches. And this is not a great comparison, but in a way, we just were talking about Hocus Pocus, three witches in a wacky comedy. Here we've got three magicians and I could take all of that and like it much better if they were pointing their fingers and blue rays were shooting out of them. You know, <laughs> does that make any sense at all? And magic borders on getting into the the fantasy, the hobbits and the Lords of the Rings and things. And we know I don't care for that at all. Yeah. You know, it's not bad. I'm not going to point out anything that I didn't like about it. It's just not one of my favorites. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes people don't like when, when genres mix. They they want something to be very clearly defined one or the other. I have no problem with, with genres mixing up. And I think this film has always just been entertaining for me because I love the people in it. 
I have no problem with, you know, and this in a film like this, I have no problem with zapping the fingers and stuff. I to me, I find that funny. And I it's like I know this is awful picky, but a lot of shots in here where they produce something or and you obviously they stop the camera long enough to put something in their hand and then it comes back. But they're never quite in the same position. And why I don't mean I don't mean to be that picky. I don't know why. I don't know if it was expectations or if I was in a bad mood or what, but I will say it kind of started out rough for me. We know Roger Corman borrows footage from all his movies and they're all in each other's movies and that's fine. But when I first saw that, you know, muddy goo paint spreading, my first thought was again in two that sets sort of a mood, you know, it works like in some of the other darker movies, but it didn't really fit here. And then that opening is really disjointed. I mean, they show a shadow of a raven. Vincent Price is reading the raven. Then there's the waves crashing in. And then we see a coffin and there's bright lighting. And then the ma- it's just a hodgepodge of things that I, I it just kind of got me unsettled before we even got the movie started. I hear what you're saying. And I can understand how that could be. It's for me, it doesn't pull me out of the moment. But, you know, for the case in point, like when you see the castle, right? The Raven finished up several days early. Corman had Karloff for what? Three more days. And he had Jack Nicholson. So he said, let's make another movie. And so he makes the terror and in like three days time, essentially. And they use the same sets and they, the same castle and the same coastline. If you watch the terror and the Raven back to back, you'd swear they're sequels to each other. And even though Jack Nicholson's playing a different character, he has a particular style about him, always has in his in his career. And if you take a look at these two particular films, it's Jack Nicholson playing the same style in both films, different characters, but still the same actor playing that same style. A lot of people don't like the terror because it's a confusing mess of a film. I can't tell you what the heck that movie's about, but I've always loved the terror. Once I realized that the terror and the raven had that connection, it elevated the terror for me. When the terror came out several years ago on Blu-ray and the print was substantially better than the murky one we had been left with, I still love the murky one. There's a connection with the raven. This might be legitimately, I think, one of our biggest departures as far as how we like the film or dislike the film. And again, I don't dislike it. It's just... It's that love. I mean, I I love the film and you don't love it. And that's there's nothing wrong with that because I think that it's how we approach. And honestly, this would be one of those things where I would challenge you to revisit the film at a later point. I know that some people, gosh, I'm going to lose my horror card, you know, my, my horror cred. Anybody says that, I would say, no, that's BS. You can like whatever you want, and there's no shame loving a great film or a bad film or whatever, and you may never like it. You might never enjoy The Raven on the same level that I do. You and I have a lot of similar tastes, but we've also got some different tastes. You watch some films in the 70s that I don't necessarily have a draw towards. I would give some a shot. Others, I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm, going to go. Tell me then what... It may be a short answer. Maybe it's just you can't explain, but you enjoy it. But what are some things you really like about it? There's a look to this film that that places it in this time period, right? I mean, I think we all know, and there's a wide variety of reasons, whether it's the film stock that was used, the style, you know, the, the cinematography, 
um, what have you, the the soundtrack. I mean, all of that stuff can just add to a film. I'm trying to remember who does this. Is it less? It is less Baxter. And that was one of my points to make is that this is one of my favorite scores of his. I thought it was fantastic. I, I love Les Baxter. He, his work is amazing. And I was pretty sure he had done this one. Right out of the gate, I love the way it looks. I love the music. I love then the cast. Vincent Price is just, he's so cool in what he does. There's just so many fun little lines that he's doing. The banter between him and Peter Lorre, which we know a lot was ad-libbing. Peter Lorre, people are either going to love him or hate him. He's a particular style. He's in his element here with his character of Dr. Bedlow. When they're going down into the bowels of Dr. Craven's home and, and going into the crypt and going into his father's laboratory so he can make Bedlow change from a raven. So much fun. Lori's just throwing stuff out. And when you know this, like you wonder how much of it was in the script. I'm thinking most of it was. And I think I think there was an idea and, and Lori was just and just with his his mannerisms and stuff, the way he would do it. That whole segment to me is a lot of fun. And I think when you get into Jack Nicholson makes his debut as Rexford. Bedlow, Dr. Bedlow's son. Laurie hates him. You know, he just, he hates his son. You can just tell it's like total disdain. And there's a funny little line when Bedlow and Craven get in the, to the carriage. Price says something about, does he favor, you know, his mother? And he says, well, she favors him. Right. When Rexford and, and, you know, father and son meet, Jack Nicholson is just kind of like brushing things off and like touching the buttons and kind of, do little things, and then, you know, <laughs> Peter Lorre just kind of smacks his head and says, stop it! I don't know. I just, I find all of that really, really fun, and when we finally get to meet Karloff, Karloff plays, uh, certainly is playing his his part of Dr. Scarabus much more serious than I would think Lorre or, or Price do, and, and it, as we get to that final battle, you know, it, it, there's a lot of comedy thrown in, but it's also comedy serious a little bit. Karloff is not quite as jovial. I think just the banter back and forth, the the script, Richard Matheson just nailed it and the characters just bring it to life. And the costumes are so great in it. Like where he's trying to get, well, Price is trying to choose like a, a something for Bedlow to wear because it's cold out. And he's like, <laughs> it's too big. And some of the goofiest hats, the scarf, you know, I don't want to get killed by a scarf. It's just some of that, just the fun banter to me. That All of that is what makes the movie so much fun. Fair enough. A couple of follow-up comments I want to make. You mentioned Karloff in his back and having trouble. I was really surprised that he came down those stairs, that long staircase, but I'm not sure he did. We see him take several steps at the top and then several at the bottom. I don't know if he really went all the way, but still I was impressed that he could do that. Going back to Jack Nicholson being Peter Lorre's son, another funny part of that was when they meet Karloff and Peter Lorre introduces him. And Karloff says, the resemblance is quite uncanny. <laughs> of course, nothing alike. So yeah, there's good stuff. Peter Lorre steals the show. I mean, all these notes I have about funny things are all, all him. And especially... Eh, don't look down on me, but the, the parts about him drinking and maybe being an alcoholic are just particularly funny. And my favorite one was when they, they're in a hurry. They've got to get to Karloff's castle. This is when Vincent Price is trying to get him his coat. So he, it's because it's cold out and all that. And uh, he's looking for something to protect him in the cold. 
and he says that Peter Lorre makes a beeline for the wine. <laughs> and Vincent Price says, no, I mean clothes. Yeah. I love the scene where he he also he, he picks up the glass, which he thinks is the wine and it's the milk. And he just like spits it out. I don't remember what this is in reference to. But at one point, Peter Lorre says, if I had been sober, it would have been a different story. And you're afraid to face me when I'm sober. Yeah. This was at Karloff's and Karloff says, are you sober? <laughs> yeah. I would challenge you to revisit it, different mindset, and give it another shot. I know this is a much beloved film, but I'm sure there's some listeners out there that don't gravitate towards it. If you don't like this one, you've got a few other Vincent Price films to choose from, uh, a few other Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff films to choose from. And see, this is weird because I loved Comedy of Terrors. I like it better than this. I would consider this better than Comedy of Terrors. That is interesting, though, that you like that. I don't think there's any magic in it. (laughs) Uh, Well, there there is not. There is no magic. Maybe that's really the root of the problem, you know? It's like... Maybe. I I think we have come to the root of the problem. Yeah, that's really weird. Why is that? And I I love magic as a kid. I had magic tricks. I did a magic show in the talent show. I mean... I don't know. Well, I'll I'll have to get on the couch and think. I was going to say, there's probably some deep-seated, perhaps you, you had this dream of being a magician and you were you were performing and something horrible happened and now you have a... You know what? I think it was. Oh, I got to call my therapist. This is a breakthrough. In ninth grade, when I did that show and I tried out, I did a magic trick and it was really cool because you're supposed to pretend like you're making a salad in this cloth and you throw in all these pretend ingredients and then you have a real egg and you throw it in at the last and then you like you know do your and 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 then hang the cloth and there's no egg well that's because there's a pouch in it you know and the egg goes in oh i'm gonna be kicked out of the magician's union because they well it's okay so great everything's fine i tried out i made it we did not take into account that i would be in a spotlight and when the spotlight showed on, you could see the egg in the clock. Oh, no. So maybe I am subconsciously, maybe that turned me off of magic. So some childhood trauma. Yeah. You know what is strange is I love, love, love the movie called Magic, but there's no magic in it. <laughs> there is no magic in it. No. Okay, enough of that. Vincent Price has some comic moments. And the thing about the... There's, this isn't really slapstick comedy. If this was slapstick, I would like this even less. But it borders on it when Vincent Price goes over to the window and he keeps hitting on the telescope, the big spinning telescope. Mm. He hits his head first, and then when yeah. he walks around the other side, he hits his crotch. That, I thought that was funny. But I have a, a plot point question. I wouldn't say he was like a bumbling magician, but the fact that he never joined the guild and that he was sitting in his own living room drawing a Uh raven with his finger and when the window blows open it disappeared i just never got the impression he was like a great magician i thought he would be the lesser of the three so based on what happens at the end that just kind of caught me off guard i'm like oh i didn't think there was any anything to indicate that he was really a greater magician than he appeared to be Am I wrong? Do you see that differently? You think about that opening scene and he's creating the image of the raven, right? And remember, he's doing it with his finger. When Bedlow comes in and and he explains that he lost and that Scarabus used his finger and Price is like, what? He used his finger? Oh, that's true. You're right. So 
I think that Price, he knew that he was, he had these great powers because not everyone can do that. But he was very low key with it. He was just like, I don't want to join that. I don't want to do that. But he was at a level already with Scarabus because he was able to do the, the finger magic. Gotcha. You're right. I take, I rescind my comment. Now, you know, clearly they were very, very evenly matched when you get to the big battle in a lot of ways. Ultimately, I think it was Scarabus's age played a factor in the end. And Price being a little bit younger was able to outlast Scarabus. Basically, he used up everything he had and he had nothing left. You know, his magic, his power has been greatly depleted. I think age played a part in it as to why, but they were very evenly matched. It's that little line that they do in the beginning part of the film. You're like, oh, that must mean that he's pretty powerful. So, And not only age playing a factor, but the fact that the good guys got to win. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back then, back then, the good guys have to win. What else you got on it? A few other little tidbits, and then we'll talk about the cast. And this comes from the intro that Price did on the Blu-ray. Talk about how he hates snakes. You know, there's that scene where you got the snake. He hated that. Absolutely hated it. I mean, you could tell by it. He said he hates snakes. He also, I think, mentioned how, or I don't know if he mentioned it, but I think I, I read it as well, that Karloff really hated the cape that he had to wear because it was a very heavy cape. Hmm. And because of Karloff's age and, again, mostly his back problems, that probably was very uncomfortable for him to wear. I read this. And I don't know if there's any truth to it, but I can see it. Supposedly, Steve Ditko modeled Doctor Strange on the character of Doctor Craven. Hmm. Certainly, visually, a similarity to Jack Nicholson. Also, apparently, hated the bird because the bird was really kind of unruly and apparently would would poop on everyone. The quote they gave it, and I and I heard it in Jack Nicholson's voice. His last line was. I really hated that bird. <laughs> I just, I heard it in Jack Nicholson's voice. I think it's a real bird in all of the scenes. It's very well trained. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So very unruly. Vincent Price, we don't need to go down his list of credits, but I wanted to take a look and see what like he and Lori and Karloff were all doing in that same year. Very busy. They all three did Comedy of Terrors that same year. Also with Basil Rathbone in that film. Vincent Price also did Diary of a Madman, which we mentioned earlier. He did The Haunted Palace, which also starred Lon Chaney Jr. He did Twice Told Tales, which was a great anthology. And which one of these is not like the others? He played Big Daddy in Beach Party. Interestingly enough, Peter Lorre, he didn't have quite as busy a year besides doing Comedy of Terrors. In the next year or so, he played Mr. Strangedoer in Muscle Beach Party. <laughs> Karloff was also in a beach movie around this time as well. He was also in The Patsy with Jerry Lewis. This was released a little more than a year before his death. He died March 23rd, 1964. I've seen this before, but it's one of these things now that I, as I'm getting older, I'm really kind of trying to compare where I'm at. And when I see these people on, on screen, he was... 59 at the age of his death. So he would have been 57 when he was filming this movie. And I don't know, he looked older than 57. I know that's people looked older back then, but I'm thinking I'm 55 and I, do I look like, like Peter Laurie? I don't know. Sorry to tell you. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so this was definitely near the end of Peter Lorre's life, unfortunately. Karloff, of course, we talked about Comedy of Terrors. He also was in The Terror, which we talked about, and a great anthology, Black Sabbath. There was a lot of great films coming out from all three of these guys right around this time period. Olive Sturgis played Estelle Craven. This was really the film she was most known for. She did lots of TV work. Jack Nicholson did Little Shop of Horrors in 1960, The Terror of the same year. That's about the end of his horror cred. Unless you get towards the end of his career, he was in Wolf. He was in The Witches of Eastwick. You know, he dabbled a little bit in that. And oh, The Shining. Yes, sorry. Yeah, Mr. The Shining. <laughs> trying to wonder, like, how old is he now? Well, he's 85. Wow. And he has been retired for 12 years. He retired in 2010. I was like, what was the last time he did a film? Well, it's been a long time. Hmm. And we should give mention to Hazel Court, who played the character of Lenore. She's got a lot of horror credit. And I don't think it's the credit oftentimes. Devil Girl from Mars, The Curse of Frankenstein, The Man Who Could Cheat Death. Dr. Blood's Coffin, Premature Burial, Mask of the Red Death, and a film we talked about quite a while ago, Omen 3, The Final Conflict. She had a, a small little cameo in that. Great cast. Roger Corman, what can we say about him? 515 producer credits, still alive and still producing films, 56 director credits, 45 as an actor, 10 as a writer. In 1963, he directed five other films or films that were released in 63, The Haunted Palace, X, The Man with X-Ray Eyes, The Terror, and again, which one of these is not like the other, The Young Racers. Richard Matheson, my gosh, the credits go a mile long on Richard Matheson. To name a few, The Incredible Shrinking Man, House of Usher, Pit in the Pendulum, Tales of Terror, 16 episodes of The Twilight Zone. His novel, I Am Legend, was turned into The Last Man on Earth and The Omega Man and I Am Legend. As well, I think there's a few other versions. He also did Night Gallery, The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler, which kicked off Kolchak, goes on and on and on. As well as an episode of Star Trek. He wrote The Enemy Within. So there's another Star Trek reference for you. And if you thought that I wasn't going to have a Doctor Who reference, well, I'm stretching it, but I'll say it. In the late 1970s, there was going to be a Doctor Who movie called Doctor Who Meets Scratch Man. The fourth Doctor, Tom Baker, was involved. And it was basically going to be the Doctor meeting up with the devil. And Vincent Price was going to play the devil. I wish we would have got that. Oh, I was going to say, how happy would you be if that existed? Vincent Price, in officially in Doctor Who, and also to see him and Tom Baker on screen would have been utterly amazing. I think it was going to be, if I remember correctly, a kind of a pseudo-American production. The funding fell through. It was eventually turned into a book. The story is out there, and Tom Baker had a, a part of that. I think he may even have co-writing credits of the book because he was involved in some of the initial ideas. That's about as close as I can get on anything with Doctor Who, but yeah, you know, that's close enough. Anything else about The Raven then? Easily found out there. It's available right now on uh, Amazon Prime Video. So if you've got that, you can check it out there. The Vincent Price collection from Shout Factory is out of print. I don't suggest you pay over $200 for that. You can find the films on that elsewhere. Kino Lorber has it on Blu-ray for $15, which 
By the time this comes out, you might be able to partake in that Kino Lorber sale for a little bit. I wrote down the sale price here is $9.49 right now. Between the two Ravens, you prefer this one. So yeah, this one's my go-to. Yeah, the 63 version of the Raven, just for the pure fun aspect, Sure, gets my vote. And I'm going to say you like the 35 version better. Yep. Yep. And Richard, I do not look down on you or judge you at all because you love this so much. Well, and, <laughs> and I don't look down upon you for not loving it as much. <laughs> I did enjoy it. I'll watch the other Raven anytime and I will watch this again. Why don't we take a break and we'll come back and do new business. Sounds good. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hemorama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated diecast movie podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. We are back with new business. And again, for a second month in a row, Richard, I'm really impressed with the home video output. Uh, I first want to say that when this is posted, there will still be time to participate in Kino Lorber's Shocktober sale. And I don't know the date that it ends, but I imagine you could still participate in Shout Factory's Shocktober sale. And I made a list of all the movies I didn't have. I will say Kino Lorber has... They have great sales. I mean, there are movies on there, six and seven dollars that are Blu-rays that I don't have that I would like to have. Yeah. Shout is not that great on their sale prices. Um, I don't think there's anything below 10. Kino Lorber is definitely is a good sale on some. Of, some of these are like, what, 50 to 60 percent. Yeah. Off. And and some are brand new. I can't remember what one it was. Planet of the Vampires. Remember, I we talked a couple episodes how I was definitely going to upgrade. It's on sale already. A lot of great films that you can get really super cheap. Of course, I made my list and I put the prices in and totaled it up. Kino Lorber alone was over $800 if I got everything that I wanted. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> October 11th, we have Mark of the Vampire from 1935 is coming out on Warner Archive. And then two weeks later, on October 25th, Warner Archive is putting out Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, my favorite version from 1931. October 18th, 2022. These are all 2022, by the way. I'll stop saying that. <laughs> Happy birthday to me from 1981, Kino Lorber, Blu-ray. Same day, Eyes of Laura Mars from 1978, Kino Lorber. A couple October 25th we mentioned last time, but I think there's a couple new ones. And I told you this off the podcast, maybe when we were having a conversation, The Bat from 1959 with Vincent Price is coming out on Blu-ray, special edition from Film Detective. 
Also on the 25th, this is something I'd be interested in getting. I don't have it at all. So it's it's from MVD Entertainment Group. It is Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things from 1972, 50th anniversary. This is a movie that Bob Clark made that made the two greatest holiday movies ever, Black Christmas and A Christmas Story. <laughs> Somebody watched the 101 Scariest Moments. Yeah. On oh, Shutter. is that where I got that? Darn it. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. I knew I saw it somewhere. I always think of that trailer, the audio clip that I've heard on, on, I think Monster Kid Radio did it, as well as others. Children shouldn't play with dead things. I always love that. We've mentioned this label before, Discotech, and I don't remember what it was they were putting out, but they have got a couple of deep, well, I shouldn't say that, Asian films in the Ultraman, Ultra Q vein in October, and I don't have the date, Space Sheriff Gavin from 1982. And I looked this up and there's a whole series, Space Sheriff so-and-so, Space Sheriff Jeff, Space Sheriff Richard. You know, it's a whole like series. It's a a series, but each one is like a series. Kaiju and Japanese fans may like that. And I have heard of this and it sounds, it's an awful title, but also from Discotech in November, I don't know the date, Legend of Dinosaurs and Monster Birds from 1977. Finally, I mean, there are more beyond this date, but we try to keep it within our month that we air. November 8th, Audrey Rose is coming from Arrow Video. Not a bad movie. Anthony Hopkins, 70s occult reincarnation type movie. Yeah. Birthdays and anniversaries. Coincidentally, on October 20th, Bella Lugosi was born. October 28th. Oh, that was in 1882. October 28th, 1902, Elsa Lanchester. And November 8th, 1947, Bram Stoker. A couple big ones there. And then anniversaries. And again, there are many. I just pick three of each. (laughs) Richard, this will come up every year during this episode. October 14th, 1973, in West Germany, What the Peeper Saw. (laughs) (laughs) That just makes me think of you. Uh, Yeah. October 17th, 1941, The Devil and Daniel Webster, also known as All That Money Can Buy. It was a recent post on my blog that I watched that for the first time and reviewed it. Yes, I I saw that you had posted. I haven't read it yet. That's a fun film. And there's a couple of films from that time period that are kind of in that vein and kind of there's another one called On Borrowed Time that has uh, Lionel Barrymore and something about he captures death in a tree Hmm. and if he lets death out or something then he dies or something and then of course his grandson doesn't have his grandpa or something like that i i it's it's been a while since i've seen that but there's some of those films that are kind of like these pseudo fantasy flicks that are kind of interesting and then finally october 22nd 1971 daughters of darkness i think we've mentioned this before i love that movie Uh, John Carlman is in it from Dark Shadows. I mention this because it is the time of year when Supermates podcast does their House of Franklinstein, Chris Franklin and his wife, Cindy. And I listened to their second episode in this month's series. And he watched Daughters of Darkness with his wife. And guess what? She didn't like it. (laughs) I just thought it was so funny. I messaged him and said, what in the world were you thinking showing your wife Daughters of Darkness? (laughs) This is the time of the show where we talk about what each of us are doing. 
And I want to first say that Richard usually goes first and he talks about what's going on at monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. And I will just say congratulations because it has just celebrated his 10th year of writing that blog. And that is incredible feat. And it has produced some great materials over the years. There's a post that he wrote on Friday, September 30th. So I'm sure you can still find it. Congratulations, Richard. Is there anything you'd like to say? No, just thank you. In there, I just kind of recollect all the wonderful things that I've done since the blog kind of opened doors for me that led to a lot of other people and other podcasts and the basement supplemental horror magazine that I did for a period of time and the Kansas City Cinephile and the, the Kansas City Film Critics Circle. A lot of that you got on to me. You know, I, I kind of gave you a big credit for this podcast and it is our podcast. This is true. But I always, you know, you're the one that came to me and said, Hey, you want to do a podcast? And I've had a lot of fun and it's 10 years and, and it's hard. A lot of life changes. Absolutely. am enjoying blogs still. And this month in particular, you know, it's where it started 10 years ago. So it's only fitting that countdown to Halloween is just kind of goes hand in hand with Monster Movie Kid. What am I doing this month? Well, I will say that we're doing the countdown to Halloween. If you don't know what we're doing, go watch the video, go read my post, go go check out what Jeff did a post as well on Facebook. By the time you listen to this, you've missed at least maybe a week and 10 days, give or take, depending on when you get this posted. Plenty of time to go catch up, check out what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing, really. I only know Jeff's one movie, and he knows maybe one or two of mine. Other than that, we're going into this blind. We know the people, not the movies, and that's a lot of fun. That is what is happening this month, busy month. I will go ahead and and, and kind of segue into a couple of things I wanted to say real quick, not related to what's going on, but what we've done. Even though this is going to come out after the fact, I think you can still get a chance to watch it. Westworld is actually on Turner Classic Movies on Saturday, October 8th. Now, this will go out most likely after that. However, Turner Classic Movies does do on-demand. They've got their player that you can, if you have Turner Classic Movies on your cable system, you have to have cable. You can access that player, and they oftentimes will keep movies on there for uh, roughly a week or so. Pretty sure Westworld is going to be something you'll be able to check. So if you haven't seen that, if you couldn't get it on DVD or Blu-ray, you can probably still check it out on Turner Classic Movies on their on-demand if you do rather quickly. I will then say that I want to give you a special shout-out. I did this on my blog this past week, but you've got a couple of things in print, one that's almost going to be in print, one that is, is out or will be soon. You are in the latest issue of Scary Monsters magazine. I, I'm looking at it right here, issue 128. It's a horror host edition. All hail the horror host issue. It's going to be out like at Barnes and Noble and other places before the end of the month. I don't know how quickly it'll be out, but if you've subscribed to it, you should already have your copy in the mail. If you don't subscribe, you don't go to the store, you can go to their website, mymoviemonsters.com. Get it. He does a great interview with Count Gregor, as well as uh, recollecting your recent trip or trip, I guess, earlier this year to see the uh, Bob Wilkins documentary that you saw out in California. Not your first time in Scary Monsters. I know that. But I mean, this is a big deal. You're there with the stars. 
Congratulations on, on getting in Scary Monsters, which is the premier monster movie magazine. Check it out. Also, you got a new book from We Belong Dead called Chopped Meat, British Horror of the 70s. It's available for pre-order at their website, webelongdead.co.uk. And you've got seven movies in this book. That's the most I think you've ever done. Yeah, I think I remember talking about that and saying that I can't believe I volunteered to do that many. You've got some great stuff. You've got The Bloody Judge, which I just recently saw myself for the first time. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, a movie I have never heard of called The Nightcomers from 1971. Yeah, that's the sequel to The Innocence, Turn of the Spirit, or prequel. Prequel, okay. The Creeping Flesh, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, The Legacy, and Saturn 3, which I got to ask, Saturn 3, released in 1980, but it was made in 79. So is that how it got into the... I'm not sure. Chopped Meat. I love those books. Those books are mammoth. There's tons of stuff in them. Check that out. Thanks. I appreciate you mentioning. And I don't, yeah, I really don't have anything to add. I mean, that stuff's coming out and then the countdown all month long. It's going to be a great October. I, I do want to say a couple things on the Chopped Meat. This is going to be a little different because the reviews are all of different lengths even though it sounds like I did a lot, a couple of them were maybe only 500 words. So I think the book itself is going to have a little different flow because there are going to be different links of interviews from everyone that participates, but it should be good. Count Gregor, I want to say that I stayed in touch with him and he was very pleased with the magazine and the article. And I want to say that if any of you listeners are in Oklahoma or Oklahoma City on October 23rd, he's going to have a public appearance. And I apologize. I don't know where, where it is, but uh, we've got some time to figure that out. And he may have copies of that to sell as well as the issue, maybe 78, 68, where he was actually the cover story uh, of Scary Monster. Certainly recommend going to meet him. Very, very nice man in his mid nineties. That's incredible. Awesome stuff. Well, let's wrap things up then. And Rich, tell us what we're doing next month. This is a fun one. I've been waiting a long time. I have as well. We'll be in that post-Halloween. Things kind of come down and things kind of get quiet. But we've got some really good stuff lined up on into early next year. And next month, out of Halloween, and we're going straight into Nature Run Amok. We've got a fun double feature one movie that I revisited recently and one that I have not seen yet. Frogs from 1972, sitting on my DVR. Svenguli aired this about a month ago. And then Day of the Animals from 1977. I can't wait. Let's call this meeting to a close. We're going to go out with another song called The Raven. This one is probably maybe pretty well known. It's by the Alan Parsons Project. It's from their 1975 album, Tales of Mystery and Imagination. And that is available on Apple Music. I love this song. I love this album. This is such a fun album. It is the best of Alan Parsons' work. A wonderful song to get you in the Halloween spirit. Thanks for listening, everyone. We look forward to seeing you back on our YouTube channel on Halloween and then here next month. Stay safe and take care, everyone. And happy early Halloween. <laughs> Thank you.